Hey gang, so here we are, end of season one. Maybe it's me, but I feel like we've gotten here really quickly. We're already at the end of the first season of Babylon 5. For, it, it feels like the time has flown, it, relatively speaking, you know. So much happens in season one, and almost all of it is establishment. I know I've said it before, a lot of people don't actually like season one, and that's fine. I know several people didn't like it their first viewing, and I will even count myself in that list. I wasn't actually a fan of Babylon 5 Season 1 until I rewatched it, you know, the first time. So, so my second viewing total overall. And then I was like, oh! Because so much of Season 1 was a slow boil. And I happen to be a fan of a slow boil. I just realized I don't need these in. I happen to be a fan of a slow boil. I know that's a preference thing, and I'm not saying anything against anybody who doesn't like it. But the slow establishment of the characters and the setting and the rules of the universe and a few key movements here or there really helped flesh the season out for me to the point where I actually really, really enjoyed going through this one. But this episode had a completely different feel to it. In my opinion, this episode in many ways felt like the first real episode of Babylon 5. In other words, it has the same general quality I would ascribe to seasons 2 through 4. Uh... And I know, you know, longtime fans of the show know what I mean by that. I'm curious if any of you actually agree with me on that sentiment. And I don't have any real concrete way to explain that other than dissecting the episode. It's literally just the feel of the episode felt more like Babylon 5 in its prime. Whereas most of season 1 was, it's good, but with flaws and establishment, so you're just kind of going along for the ride. This felt like, you know, solid meat to go back to that analogy with the one and I were talking about. I've got a few notes here. No controversy box today, thank God. <laughs> Every time I see that controversy box, I'm like, hmm. This is going to be a little more linear than it usually is with one big exception. So, I want to talk a little bit about the establishment thing first. One of the reasons I feel television is an excellent medium for storytelling, ignoring reality, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, is because of the fact that you can do something like the slow boil. You can spend several episodes establishing a character. You can spend several episodes establishing a culture and a civilization and and a and everything. You can build up gradually. Movies have to race much, much quicker. Books usually actually slow down even more, but it's a, it, it, in my experience, most writers don't know how to do that without just becoming flat-out boring or dry, uh, you know, reaching the encyclopedia effect, if you will. And video games, well, that varies wildly depending on the format of the video game. How much time did, for example, uh, Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare, have to establish its characters? Now, it did a good job with the time it had, and I'm not saying you can't. But I will always say that television is one of the better uh, mediums, not the best, but one of the better mediums for really taking its time and leaning you into something in depth rather than giving you just more of a surface projection of something. And again, no judgment here. I'm not trying to say, <laughs> I'm not trying to say movies are bad or anything. I'm just trying to say that television is good for this kind of thing. Now, I said I'd talk about the realities. What I mean by that is television at least in the time when this show is being made and most other shows, is one of the most uh, dangerous things to try and make that exists out there, despite the fact that it's relatively cheaper than a movie in virtually every way. It also brings in a lot less money. And studios are generally, you know, in general, of course. And studios, there's so much hassle. I've talked about this in both my Voyager stuff and here on Babylon 5. There's so much you have to go through to make a show at all, to get a first few episodes. 
you're lucky to get a season for a television show. A lot of people don't really realize how many shows out there have had have made three episodes. How many shows out there have made one episode, the pilot, and they never got anywhere? Because that's how difficult it is to get into television and to start a television show. And then once you're starting, you're pretty much under a constant threat of cancellation. Even if you're not in immediate threat, that danger is always going to be looming ahead. Babylon 5 itself had a tremendously rocky experience getting made, being pushed forth by a company that didn't even do television as its primary product, along with, I forget the other name of the company. I don't remember names right now. This, this is just an anecdote I'm sharing here. My point I'm trying to reach, let, let's wrap this up. My point I'm trying to reach is that the realities of making a television show are nightmarish, and therefore it's one of the worst mediums to do any kind of story in ever. However, in an ideal world where the realities don't exist, where uh, we are in a post-scarcity society, or where we don't need to deal with network executives or idiots, sorry for being redundant, um, television is an excellent medium for storytelling. And Season 1 Babylon 5, in my opinion, is like my er example of that. It's not the only example of that. Other shows have done the same. I would argue TNG did that. I would argue DS9 did that. I would argue Farscape did that. I would argue... Um, the Walking Dead did that. I would argue Breaking Bad did that. Uh, I'm trying to think of examples that aren't sci-fi. So much of the shows I watch are sci-fi, and it's kind of unintentional. Um, I'll, I'll just stop there. There are other examples. The point being, though, that this episode is the payoff episode. I know JMS said he was super excited to go ahead and finally do the episode Babylon Squared. He was so interested. He was so ready to do... Oh, where is it? I actually pulled this up. He was so interested. He was so excited. He was like, oh, I can't wait to finally talk about this big reveal that I've been building up towards all this time. But this episode, uh, Chrysalis, is the real payoff episode. Is the absolute chukong. Uh Sorry, I was just noticing a little tidbit there. Lots of stuff happens in this episode. Lots of things change in this episode. And that's another thing. Some writers I've, I've coached in writing don't seem to get this point. Change by itself is not significant. If I tell you... Uh, let, give me just a moment. Let me actually think of one of my actual stories for a moment. Mm, okay. So there's a gentleman and a woman, and they both enter this ancient temple of some sort, and they get through and they find a dragon, and oh my god, it's amazing that there's this dragon there, but unfortunately, his life essence is tied towards a shield against his will that is preventing them from entering the further room, and in order to enter it, they have to kill this dragon. And the dragon is peaceful and friendly, by the way, just to make that clear, this isn't a boss fight. He is willing to accept death. And so he accepts death, and they go in, and they find that all of the other ones who were in there who were supposed to be safe and sound are gone. There's no actual dragons in there. It was all for nothing. Now, that may or may not sound impacting, but it probably doesn't, because I didn't establish that first, did I? Now, what I just told you is actually part of a D&D campaign I was running once, uh, which that was one of the culminating points you know, quite a ways into the campaign, many, many sessions in, to establish the characters, to establish the setting, establish the rarity of dragons, the fact that they haven't seen, been seen in generations, trying to talk about their culture and, and what they were like and why people still venerate them, even though, you know, they're basically just a part of myth at this point. I did all this build-up work so that when that payoff happens, it has impact, okay? Season 1 of Babylon 5 was almost all build-up. 
Uh, there, like I said, there were events that happened for their own sake, but it was all trying to make it so that you were invested so that when everything changes, that change means something. You can't just say, all right, here's this federation, and then aliens invade. It, it, there's, it, without establishment, we don't care about the fact that this federation is gone. Even if you, the writer, think the main story focus should be on the loss of this federation and and the loss of their, con, you know, their, their con, con, con culture and the loss of their civilization and the loss of their technology and the fact that they have built up this great society which is now brought. Nobody's going to care about that because you never established it. You with me so far? I know this sounds like really basic writing stuff to some of you, but you would be amazed how many writers, even professional writers, don't understand the very basic rule of establishment. And again, a television series in an idealistic world is a great medium for establishment because you can establish while doing other things. In fairness, I have seen a lot of video games do the same thing. While you're doing X, Y is being woven in so that when the t time comes for Y to be relevant, you have an understanding of the stakes and the scope and the scale, right? I mention that because there's a quote right at the end, nothing's the same anymore as Sinclair is holding... Oh God, I can never think of her name. His, his wife-to-be, the woman he just asked to marry him. And... That line would... Imagine if this was literally the first episode of Babylon 5. If season one, episode one, was this episode. Now, that could work, and that has worked in some cases. But without establishment, it wouldn't have anywhere near the same impact. It would be a different style of writing entirely at that point. At that point, you're not establishing something to change it. You are changing something as the jump point to get to the real meat of the story. It's basically... Uh, I guess that would be... Yeah, front-end storytelling instead of Babylon 5's approach, which is back-end storytelling. In other words, build-up payoff rather than payoff build-up. I know that's a that's not a perfect analogy, but like the the big impact point being either at the beginning or the front or the end, and then having the 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 detritus, the the consequence of that big payoff at the beginning, or having the build-up to the big payoff at the end. That's the two styles of storytelling there. Um, so, I have a note here that just says the Narn and the Centauri. And then I have a whole section which I wrote just about that. We're going to leave that for later. Um, there's also... Uh, I, 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 I swore I'd point out the aspects of bad writing in this show just because I praise it so much. And I am super biased. I will freely admit I'm extremely biased because this is my favorite television show of all time. You know, this is the FF6 of TV for me. That's not a joke. So I am very biased against or for it, excuse me. But in the interest of fairness, it is worth noting, and it, it kind of makes me roll my eyes every time I see some incredibly blatant, cliched writing in my favorite show. For example, oh, this guy manages to stumble to Garibaldi, but as he's dying, he can't give his dying message now. And the funny thing is, they repeat that cliche later with Garibaldi to Sinclair, and in both cases, it's too late to actually do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, anyways, um, I love the marriage proposal scene between Sinclair and, uh, I'm going to call her Woman Face, because I don't remember her name, um, the Explorer Woman. Uh, that's, that's probably the character trait that leaps to my mind first when it comes to her, an explorer and an entrepreneur. So the marriage proposal was great. You know why? Because it was incredibly natural and human for two people who have already been both friends and in a relationship with each other, romantic relationship with each other, for years. 
When you get to that point, you don't really do the big cliche, Neil, will you marry me? Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with that. But most of the time when you see a marriage proposal like that, it's between two people who've been together for a year or two. When you've been together for a decade or more, and then you decide to get married, you know each other. You're already used to each other. You already know not to put on airs. Because you don't need to. Because they already have seen you. They've already seen you at your vulnerable. They've already seen you at your best and your worst. So you just say it. And the way he said it was so natural and smooth. It's it's just a great scene and I love it overall. So you, you want to marry me or not? You know, it's, it's great. And he had that whole awkward lead up to it. As he was trying to put on airs and trying to phrase it. And then he finally gave up and was just himself. And that's when she said yes. Great scene. Loved it. Very well written. Um... There's another excellent scene after this where Londo is there. And I have a note about this. <clears throat> so, first of all, he was being nibbled to death by cats. Because cats are the little bird-like things with feathers that go quack. <laughs> it's, a, it's another excellent scene. And again, it's another one of those helping to flesh out, to humanize, alienize both Veer and, uh, and Londo. They've got, they've got a couple scenes like that, which are really nice. And yet, one of the things I like about that scene is it serves double duty. It's not just there to help give that down-to-earth, everyday perspective, but also to showcase one of probably Londo's biggest overall character traits, his sense of duty. If you will, it's actually something close to nationalism. So, he's... uh, he is being told to do something he hates. He's being told to do something he violently disagrees with. He's being told to do something that he would rather chew off his own arm than do. And yet he will do it because it is his duty. It is his responsibility, if you will, in order to accomplish this end for the great Centauri Empire. And all that pride is hurting him just the same as it is forcing him to do this thing. That'll come up in the future. I'm sorry, one second. This will not take long. It's about the little one. Just a moment. Uh, Where's the asterisk on this thing? (laughs) Whatever. So, I'm not going to edit that out. It's no need. It's only a few seconds. It was nice to see Garibaldi uh, in action. Well, I'm on the subject. Most of the time we see the results of his investigations. It was nice to actually see the investigation itself, to really see him going out there and accomplishing and doing in his particular idiom. Some of it was, I'll be honest, a little bit blunt and a little bit amateur, which makes me think of that whole uh, problem I've talked about before, how how one of the reasons it's actually probably a good idea not to show it. To explain what I mean, this is my favorite example of this. If you write a character to be a military genius... And you, the writer, are not a military genius. It is usually better to show the results of that character's actions rather than try to show the actions themselves. Because if you portray someone as a military genius and you don't know anything about tactics or barely know anything about tactics, the guy, it's going to come across wrong. And this happens a lot. You know, someone's, It's called an informed character trait, actually. In other words, we are told someone's great at something, but every time they try to demonstrate it, they fail because the writer doesn't know how to demonstrate it, right? Because they're not skilled in that. There are a couple of ways around that. Like I said, one, you could show results of actions rather than the actions themselves, which is what they've done with Garibaldi so far. Uh, Another option is you can actually hire a consultant. 
literally hire someone who is capable of, of tactics, to use an example, or detective work and say, how should this work? Th those kind of creative consultants exist in Hollywood and in writing in general for a reason. There are plenty of people who lend out their expertise in, in uh, astronomy or physics or mathematics or, or cybernetics or hacking or military tactics or history or all sorts of things specifically to be able to give a more believable impact to a story, right? In this thing, it's basically Garibaldi going around asking a few people a few questions and getting lucky. So it doesn't really portray him as accurate as he should be until the end, at which point he is very on the nose with all of his things, with one horrible, horrible exception. <clears throat> if you haven't seen this episode yet, I, I would like to pause for a moment and say that I strongly urge everyone to watch the episode first, then my rumination. Uh, I don't know which order you've been doing it in. I could ask Samurai right now. He's on Twitch chat right now. I know he's been one of my viewers who's been watching these with me. And I know there's a couple others like that as well. But it is my recommendation you watch the episode first, then my discussion. I don't know if anybody does it in reverse. Just thought I'd give that warning. So with that being said, so when Garibaldi's number two man, who also happens to be a friend of his, shoots him in the back, he really didn't see that coming. That being said, I think that's very in character for Garibaldi. This is sort of spoiling, but that will come up in the future, too. That whole being shot in the back by his friend thing. And it's part of his character development. See, Garibaldi has a bit of a flaw. Once he trusts someone, they're above reproach, basically. He doesn't really think about them anymore. Now, he has shown several times that he, will, he is willing to investigate, say, Sinclair, Jeff in order to try and see if Sinclair has been up to something. And yet every time he has done so, he has never done so with the anticipation of finding anything. He did it so he could say he was thorough, so he could say he was unbiased, even though he wasn't. Because he understands procedure, he understands protocol. A very lawful good kind of guy, at the same time, also kind of very chaotic good. It's actually funny. I, I talked about that before. The point I'm trying to reach here, though, is that it's a damn shame that he, he has that weak spot because that's exactly how it was used against him. It never even occurred to him that this guy was, was working uh, against, against him, you know, with, with the enemy in this case. He didn't even know who the enemy is in this case. Nobody does. Throughout the whole episode actually understands who's actually pulling the strings here, although there's some very serious hints that it's our mysterious friends with Mr. Morden. But anywho... <clears throat> Um, also, for those of you who have been keeping track, yes, that guy who plays his friend who shoots him in the back is the same actor who played him in a previous episode. Uh, I feel like I pointed it out back then, but if I didn't, I am fully pointing it out now. This guy, again, that whole establishment thing. It's like, oh, that guy, you know. Uh, it, while I'm on the subject, I also love the, the fact that the Sinclair, this is actually a very, very cliched, but very well executed shot. Where Sinclair's like, I want you to do this, and I want you to get onto the bottom of this, and deal with this, and take care of this, and find the people who did this, and da 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 And then the camera pulls back, or the camera switches, excuse me. And the person he's giving the orders to is the traitor, the friend. I can't remember his name, forgive me, I had to look it up last time. But, you know, the guy who shot him in the back. Uh, is the one who he's giving the orders to. That being said, I felt like the one uh, guard who actually demonstrated having a brain, you know, when he picked up the gun and said, hang on, the gun's cool. You know, immediately pointing out the flaw in his superior's argument. The fact that he was cowed so easily by that actually struck me as off. Considering we've already seen in the past on this show that lower, uh, decks, uh, lower decks security personnel are willing to go 
above, you know, skip ahead in the chain of command in order to go straight to Sinclair or to Garibaldi in the past and say, hey, something's up here. They've been willing to do that before. So I'm not sure why he wasn't willing to bring this up to Sinclair. That seems like a huge thing to me. But then again, maybe he was more overtly threatened later off camera. I don't know. I just feel like that could have been better constructed. Let's rewind a little bit. Uh, so speaking of Garibaldi, one last point about him. I love the scene uh, where he's there sitting at the table with Ivanova and Sinclair and Explorer Woman. Um, because <laughs> I don't know her name. Because uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to get like 50 comments of people telling me her name. Um, because of the fact, I, I love it because of the fact that Garibaldi has already had his heart broken. Like, absolutely crushed. And of all people to understand that heartbreak, one thing I have found true in my real life is that people who understand pain, real pain, the kind of pain most people have never even comprehended and hopefully never will, those people tend to either be much, much more bitter, violent, vitriolic people, or, and this is what I see more often, they tend to be more sympathetic, more understanding, more kind, more caring. Because they know what that pain's like. And to see someone else not have to go through that is a relief, especially a friend. So Garibaldi, who's already been through that heartbreak, seeing Sinclair finally tie the knot, finally get together with a woman he loves dearly and is very close to, that's just got to warm him. And it shows in his performance. He's so clearly, obviously, blatantly, gushingly happy for Sinclair. And he stumbles over himself as he tries to explain that. And I love it. Very natural very human, very believable, very down-to-earth. You starting to see why I like this show so much? It's all about the characters and the politics, but we'll get to politics more later. I love how Delenn shows up now of all times, but it makes sense. There's a theory that's never quite been proven that I believe in personally, and again, this is one of those real-life, I-actually-agree-with-it kind of a situations. Hang on. I, I don't want you all to tell me something. Catherine Sakai. There, that's her name. So, nobody leave me a comment about her name now. <laughs> I'm probably saying her name wrong. Don't leave me a name. Don't leave me a comment telling me how to pronounce her name. Catherine. <laughs> Del, uh, there's a theory out there that things will naturally gravitate towards given events. In other words, that the idea of historical crossroads is a logical byproduct of the many permutations of the mathematical formulas that exist in real life. It, it, I know I'm explaining this wrong, because I'm terrible at explaining things that just make sense in my head. But what I'm trying to get across is the theory that if you were to look at all of human society, or all of, or all of a major society, or whatever, this is you know in real life or in fiction, whatever, and if you were to look at like peaks in terms of events of significance and troughs, most things will tend to do this, generally, of course. In other words, while this is peaking over here, this is also peaking, and this is also peaking, and this is also peaking. Because of the natural ebb and flow and reaction and reaction between people, between societies, between culture, between whole nations, between uh, you know, genders and ages and religions, all of those things tend to bounce back and forth and kind of create this sort of resonance, uh, increasing oscillation that will naturally reach a peak point at about the same point other things are make, reaching a similar peak point. I hope I'm explaining this correctly. My point is this episode is a huge peak point in history, in the history of Babylon 5. It is a crossroads. That, that term is actually mentioned several times. And again, Sinclair himself has the, the phrase, nothing's the same anymore. 
And that's so true. So many things come to a head in this episode. Uh, the, the issue with the president, which we've actually had that as a backdrop many times in this episode, I've, or in the series, excuse me. And I've tried to point out each time the president has come up because I knew it would be coming up in the future where it would actually have impact. You know, that establishment would then pay off here when the president, who has been very pro-alien, who has been very trying to increase diplomatic relations and add uh, increase humanity's presence within the galactic community without being domineering, you know, a more diplomatic Star Trekky approach, if you will, as a or Federationy approach, as opposed to a more Dominion pr approach from Star Trek. And he's dead. He's been destroyed. His whole ship has been destroyed. And we're left with the extremely clear impression, both because of the writing and because of the events of the episode that that was a deliberate attack. And now we've got this new bald guy. Uh, what was his name? Uh, I wrote it down. Uh, Clark, who's in charge, and who knows what he's going to be going through. What's the first thing he said in his speech, though? Well, not the first thing. It was one of the first things he said of significance in his speech. We'll be looking towards the interests of humans, which is pretty much the exact opposite in tonality of what the previous president, uh, Santiago, I want to say, was in favor of. Food for thought. That happened... Um, and then we have, you know, Sinclair finally getting together with her. Garibaldi nearly dies. Something's going on with Delenn. Now she's come to him. Something's going on with Delenn and the Vorlons. She really have no idea what that's all about. Just nothing but speculation. Well, the answer was yes to what? And, of course, then she undergoes some kind of thing, which God knows what that's going to be about. And, and we all, all we know about it is that it's painful. She might not survive it. And it, it, it caused difficulty to others to learn that she was doing it at all. Remember, Lanier was actually crying, watching her undergo whatever this is. And then when Sinclair comes in, she's basically out of it. There's no interaction with her possible anymore. So now what, you know? Um, and there's one other thing that comes to a head in this episode. But I want to save that for just a second. I want to say that the directing of this episode was phenomenal. A lot of it. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of pacing. This episode is basically an entire episode of running. It starts off at a bit of a trot, gets to jogging, and then it's running right up until the finale at which it, it stops to catch its breath. That's pretty much the pacing of the entire episode uh, in a nutshell. And I, I remember feeling genuinely pulled into the action, immersed, if you will, in the action, especially during the medical drama with Garibaldi. Some really good dialogue there, some really good energy, some really good camera angles. They did a good job of making it feel as threatening as it should. There's a great line in there about how we can't even operate till he stabilizes. I like that. Too often in fiction, people tend to forget how medical procedures actually work, how you try to make it so that they can survive the surgery before you go to the surgery. Because remember, surgery is literally cutting someone open. You're butchering someone. You're, you're, you know, it may be butchering them to make them better, but you're still butchering them. And a lot of people tend to forget that key point and just say, oh, we'll just fix them, you know. Nice point. Very, very well done. Um, there's also some really great uh, uh, bits with regards to Garibaldi and Jakar, and Garibaldi and Londo. There's a scene where, uh, and I'll talk about Jakar in just a second, there's a scene where Jakar and his aide, oh gosh, hang on, hang on. <laughs> What's his aide's name? Uh, Oh, what's her... Natath! Excuse me. Natath is her name. 
I'm start writing these names down. Um, there's a great scene uh, where Jakar and Natath enter the, uh, the the turbo lift equivalent, the, the sky rail, uh, with Ivanova, and you know he says, "I was hoping to talk to Commander." And she says, "No, he's down with medical." And Jakar's tone and posture and everything immediately changes. Wonderful, wonderful props to the actor because it sounds like he is genuinely concerned about Garibaldi. Like, whatever their professional differences might have been or whatever else is there, when the chips are down, he actually gives a damn and cares that Garibaldi has basically been murdered and may actually not pull through this. And it affects him, and he lets that show, and I like that. There's also a really great dialogue between them as in Narn terms. I've, I've talked before about the Narn cultural perspective and how it's different than ours in general. I've, I've talked about that, so I'm not going to rehash that point. But from the Narn cultural perspective, from that ideology, what Jakar and Natath say to Ivanova is basically, we're with you on this one. You and us, we have both had a dark, terrible black day in our history. We will seek vengeance, and we hope you will have justice too. You know, I, I really like, he was basically holding out an olive branch. And I like that. I like that a lot, actually. I said I'd talk about Jakar in a minute, but one more thing before I get to Jakar. There's this excellent scene where Londo goes to uh, to meet J Garibaldi to go to go just stand there. Do note that that's a meaningless gesture. I don't mean that as an insult. I do the same damn thing. I have done the same damn thing in real life. Just been there for the person. Speaking as someone who's been on the other side of that, someone who's gone under the knife more than once in my life, I know how comforting it is to feel to look up and when you wake up, having a familiar face there. If nothing else, it is a reassurance that they care. The fact that Londo, with all the big political scheming and upheaval that's going on, makes time to go out and see his friend and actually stand there and try to be there as a comforting presence, that means a lot. And I like that touch. I've pointed out before Londo and Garibaldi's friendship, even since, like, the first episode. It, I feel like this really hits the hammer home, though. He has no... There's no benefit to him for this. There's no possible gain for him. He just cares. Jakar, then. Let's talk about him. Jakar was deliberately designed to be a cartoonish villain from the beginning. Is as a bit of misdirection. I don't mind admitting that now. I've kind of talked about this before. I've kind of danced around the topic. But he was deliberately made to appear as stereotypically villainous as possible. They even picked the actor, uh, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this, Katsulas, I want to say. Andreas Katsulas, great actor. Rest in peace. Um, who normally plays the kind of obstinate aggravating, you know, obstructive bureaucrat, let's just put it bluntly, asshole, that that kind of role needs. He deliberately picked him, and he deliberately had him portray this role. And there were some concerns said early on, saying this Chikar guy barely fits. He's just a, he's just a, a, a Captain Planet villain. Why is he here? And JMS just kept saying, it's okay. We're going somewhere with this. Because he wanted to pull the bait and switch. Jakar is presented as such a stereotypical villain, and yet if you really pay attention, and I've kind of pointed this out throughout this series, everything he does does still fit in line with his character, with his arc, with his people, 
But his real character arc actually begins in this episode. Here we start to see Jakar shift. Now, to explain what I mean by that, some people who know my show at all know that I say that there are five points to story, right? Plot, setting, characterization, character growth, themes, in no particular order. Some people have asked me before, uh, I guess it would be these two? I don't want to do that. We'll do these two. <laughs> Why is it that I separate characterization and character growth? Because from a story, it is, and here's my answer, because from a story perspective, those are two very, very, very different things. It is one thing to give a, a, an individual a lot of characterization, backstory, flavor, personality, that kind of a thing, depth, right? It is another thing to completely shift them into what is usually referred to as a character arc, having their character grow over time into something new, into something different. We have actually had a decent amount of characterization when it comes to Jakar up until this point in time. But now is finally the point in which he's going to have character growth. His character is actually going to shift and start on a new arc, a new pathway, and on the crossroads as Jakar leaves the station at the beginning of, at the end of this episode, just like all the other things that have been upheaved at the end of this episode. And it really become it really is nailed home for me in that wonderful, wonderful speech when he's been woken from sheer exhaustion with the news that their outpost and thousands and thousands of their warriors and civilians are killed. And his reaction, and he's just, well, but the human, it's, it's a great scene. In fact, if I was still doing the post credit scene, screw you, copy wrong, uh, I would show you this scene because it's, it's a great scene. I was like, the, the humans couldn't do it and the Centauri don't have the will and the, the Vorlons don't care and the Membari wouldn't do it. No one else has the strength. And it just sort of slowly dawns on him that things are bigger and more dangerous than he ever realized. And that realization really strikes him to his core. And you can tell, again, great props to the actor, you can tell how much it affects him. You can tell how much he is impacted by this and how much he realizes this means he has to change his, his strategy. And that wonderful message he gives to Natath at the end really helps to emphasize this. We are, tell, tell the commander, he was right. We are at a crossroads and it's time to figure out what we can do about it. You know, great scenes. I have to admit, uh, I had actual chills when Morden showed up. And isn't the timing of that fascinating? Morden shows up right at the time when the Centauri are willing to scrape and bow and, ca and are capitulating once again to the Narn regime. Just saying, oh yes, master, please, master, don't hurt us anymore. Isn't that timing fascinating when he comes to Londo, who is already bottomed out and has continued to have been shown how much worse things can get even at the bottom of the barrel? I point this out. Well, I'm going to try very hard to dance around spoilers here, but it has been argued that most other characters would not accept Mr. Morden's help. The only reason Londo did was he was already rock bottom. He was already at a point in his life where he thought he had nothing to lose. Where he just thought he was desperate and afraid and prideful enough. And ambitious enough. And with the drive and the motivation and the passion that lies burbling under the surface. And we've seen that since the very first episode to actually be a willing target for what Mr. Morden is selling. So I got chills when Mr. Morden shows up. And then Londo gives this great speech to him about 
And it, it, it's, it pretty much says flat out what I have been telling you since, again, the first episode about Londo's character. He's given up. Well, yeah, there comes a point in your life when you look in the mirror and you, you, you realize this is all you will ever be. And you either accept it or you kill yourself. And he says it with such bluntness. I love it. And the really horrifyingly chilling part is Londo is a career politician. We've already well established this. He knows how the purple works. He knows how the game of politics works in general, but especially amongst the Centauri. So Mr. Morton says, we'll do this for you. And Londo's like, what's the price? Oh, nothing. We just might ask for a favor in the future. Look at Londo's reaction to that. He knows exactly what's being asked of him. And then there's this wonderfully chilling scene, great directing, where he comes back to his, cons uh, his room and he says with absolute quiet severity to Veer, tell them I will deal with it. Tell them I will personally deal with it. Are you, are you drunk? Are you mad? No, I am quite sober. In his portrayal, you could see that Londo knows what he's doing. He knows he's making a mistake. He knows what the cost is of favors in the political game. He knows that anyone who actually has the backing and military hardware or power or whatever it is to be able to accomplish what Mr. Morden implies they can is someone who is very, very dangerous. And there is this sort of dread in his acceptance of it. And it's a wonderful callback to his own speech. He has stared in the mirror, and now he has chosen to accept what he is. This is also the beginning of his character arc, by the way. We've had a lot of characterization for Londo throughout the season one, and this is the beginning of his character growth. There is a really great speech that Sinclair gives to Jakar. I'll summarize it for you. Cycle of violence. There's the summary. No, I, in all sincerity, though, that is what the speech is about. I've talked about this with regards to Warcraft somewhat recently. To wit, the Magnaron abused the Gron, abused the Ogres, abused the Orcs, abused the... You know, it, it, it's the cycle of violence. The abuser, the abused becomes the abuser. That's the very concept of the cycle of violence. It's a dirty, disgusting, terrible circle of misery and hate. And it's very difficult to break out of, too. And uh, it's part of that whole action-reaction thing I mentioned earlier. And Sinclair basically gives that speech to Jakar in a nutshell. What you did, you had to do. You became strong. You became willful. But now you've gone too far. You are now at the point where you are becoming the abuser. And, and Jakar's response to that, you can tell he's actually rattled by that. Because on some level, Jakar is bothered by what he says. Jakar understands the truth of what he says, and he knows that there is a degree of reality to the fact that they have probably gone too far, that his own hatred has probably poisoned his own thoughts, and acknowledging that you are wrong on some level or another, or your nation is wrong. That's an uncomfortable thought, and he visibly demonstrates it. Um, one last note here before I get to the spoiler section. When Londo goes to see Mr. Morden, please pay very close attention to a man who is ambitious and politically savvy and understands the harsh realities of war and of glory and of imperialism and conquest. And this is a man who hates the Narn, at least to some extent. 
and he is horrified by how many Narn are now dead because of his choice. And he portrays that in his tone, in his mannerisms, and in what he says. This is a man who has gained a great deal of political influence and affluence, whose career has basically just been skyrocketed because of this incident, and yet his first thought and his first reaction is, oh my god, this is horrible. That right there is the beginning of really seeing the real Londo Malari. For all his ambition and pride, his first thought is of the thousands dead. How many other politicians can you say the same for? That's all I got. We're going to go ahead and do that spoiler section. So, repeating our uh, process from last time, I'm going to give the nice big warning here. <clears throat> Five, four, three, two, one. Spoilers ahead! Okay. This is the first time we see President Clark. It's actually funny to me. Because uh, he's actually been mentioned before this more than once. Ivanova actually has a direct quote about him and about how she doesn't like him for the wrong reasons. And I mention that because I've always felt that President Clark is arguably the main villain of the series. I, I, I'm saying that wrong. The worst villain of the series. While Emperor and, of course, the Shadows and the Vorlons certainly vie for, you know, villainy up there. Clark, holy crap. That man has issues. That man has volumes of issues. But we get, to, so we see him for the first time. But the thing is, similar to Kai Wen over in Deep Space Nine, we get a good insight into his character with the first action we see him take. What was Kai Wen willing to do the very first time we ever saw her in DS9? She was willing to murder and betray and lie and steal to improve her religious political career. President Clark, well, we don't know he did it. In fact, the episode is actually surprisingly quiet in implying that. It definitely implies someone assassinated the president, and it definitely implies a conspiracy. But the thing is, based on the way the show has been building up to this point, the most likely conspirators to do that are actually Psychor, who have been portrayed as the, the, you know, the boogeymen, governmental bad guys back at home more than once. And so most people, and I, I, I myself am one of them, most people, when we first saw this, immediately thought they were the ones pushing this. But the fact that they showed Clark kind of made me go, hmm, you don't usually show a character like that unless you're doing something with it. The fact that they found, you know, oh, it was their big investigation back home found nothing was just further proof that someone was behind everything. But, so in other words, unlike Kai Wen, where we absolutely knew that she was behind those depraved events, we don't actually know that Clark is behind them here. But we do get that insight into his character in LS because he is willing to take out an entire capital-class military-grade starship just to kill one man so he can climb up the wrong one step into power. Think about how many people died on that ship. Think about the cost and expense of the ship itself. Think about all of the backlash of that. Think about how many people had to be bribed. Think about how many people had to be controlled or coerced or killed in order to make that happen. And all of that was just so we could climb one rung on the ladder and take power. And that is President Clark. That's all I got for you guys. Great episode. Season 2 coming up soon. Woo! I'll have to design a new intro. Ahem, and stop dropping my pen. I'll see you next time, guys.